I've been managing the internships for the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute uh, almost from the beginning. Oh, wow. Uh, looking at building a bridge between initially the social work program mm -hmm. and the institute. So we had the social work interns, and we've had them for several years now. And then the uh, Jerry Malour left a great gift to the university, mm -hmm. and we had the Jerry Malour interns. Well, the Jerry Malour interns eventually were moved into the Gene Callahan internship program, mm -hmm. and so we changed the name. And now we have two Gene Callahan interns that we send to Springfield every year. As you know, Gene Callahan was a very good friend of Paul Simon's, mm -hmm. and when you think about the legacy of Gene Callahan and sending two students to, to Springfield to work in the House, they work in the Senate, oftentimes the Gene Callahan interns work in state agencies. Some of them are interested in health care policy, so they work at uh, the Department of Health and Human Services. Mm -hmm. We've had a Gene Callahan intern at the Department of Transportation. And then we have the Alexander Lane intern. Alexander Lane intern is an internship that's named for the first African-American graduate of SIU. Mm -hmm. And those interns are individuals that one year they're in the House, the next year they're in the Senate. Oh, wow. And these interns actually, <laughs> they have done a phenomenal job. And just to see the growth and the development in those young people mm -hmm. over the course of the legislative session. They start in January and they go through the end of the spring legislative session. They write press releases, they uh, do member involvement and engagement, uh, they sit in on committee hearings, they sometimes work late into the, into the night mm -hmm. uh, working when the legislature is in session. So anytime the legislature is in session, those interns are there and they're at the Capitol, they're engaged, they're involved, and they're learning the legislative process up close and personal. Well, and it was, when we were talking about this before hitting the record button, uh, when I said Isaac, your eyes just lit up. <laughs> yes, I, I, Isaac, Isaac Lettington is, a, is just a phenomenal young man and a, an outstanding intern. Uh, and oftentimes interns do such a good job. Yeah. And, the, and, and, and this year managing the internship during the pandemic. Oh, yeah. Uh, this was very interesting. And so those interns that we had this year, we, had, we managed the Barb Brown interns mm -hmm. uh, in conjunction with uh, the political science department. Those individuals either work, typically they work uh, external, so they may work for the trial lawyers, mm -hmm. the medical society, external agencies. But this year, because of the pandemic, the Barb Brown interns actually worked at the state capitol. And one of the interesting things about Isaac Lettington is mm -hmm. he did such a great job, he was actually asked to stay over the summer, so he's actually, <laughs> in, as we speak, he's in Springfield working uh, for the, for the um, the Senate Democrats. Uh, that's so good. Usually, I'll, I'll I'll make a reference to you know somebody that's been on the podcast and connect them through. But Isaac's on my list to get him on the podcast okay. when he's back from <laughs> from Springfield at some point. So, yes. Ah, that's just it's it, it's just a small world how it all comes together. It is, and he and he actually will come back and finish his senior year. Mm -hmm. The interns, oftentimes, some of them are seniors, mm -hmm. some of them are juniors, like Isaac. Yeah. So he will finish his, uh, he'll come back to campus and finish his senior year, but he will have so much experience. Yeah. And some of the interns, uh, like Ryan Gugis, for instance, uh, mm -hmm. who is now Government Affairs Director for uh, the Department of Professional Regulations, mm -hmm. uh, was, a, was, a, was an in, a Gene Callahan intern, mm -hmm. left the Callahan intern, Internship, stayed on staff as a, as a staffer, went over to the Department of Revenue, 
as a legislative liaison, and now he's at uh, the, the Department of Professional Regulations. And so those interns go in, they get just a great uh, understanding of government, mm -hmm. how government works, and many of them find, they find their place yeah. in government. And so we are building that next generation of individuals from government. And throughout, uh, you can walk around the Capitol and walk across uh, Springfield, the campus between the Stratton Building yeah. and the Capitol, and just see the number of Salukis that are there <laughs> that came through uh, our internship programs. And we also have a partnership uh, with, the, with the Celia Howard Foundation. Mm -hmm. And we have two interns here in Carbondale, the Celia Howard Fellowship Program. And th that's an internship program or a fellowship program that I manage for the uh, Paul Simon Public Policy Institute, mm -hmm. and it's, it's it's a great opportunity for women who are interested uh, in, in in government, who are interested in in policy, who are interested in public service, yeah. and we have two of those interns each each year. And this past year, we had a young woman who's actually a dual degree student, uh, Jerica Griffin, mm -hmm. and dual degree student who actually is working on a law degree and a social work degree. And so she was with us for a year. It's a year-long fellowship program, and those individuals actually research a policy issue mm -hmm. uh, throughout the year, and primarily interested uh, in issues about women's issues. It could be women's health, it could be pay equity, it could be a whole host of uh, different uh, kinds of, of issues that they research, but we actually have two of those individuals every year again having a fellowship at the Institute where they work day in uh, throughout the year. Mm -hmm. uh, they start in the summer and then they go throughout the calendar year. Uh, it's going to be great uh, when when we're finished with the podcast here. Uh, one of the art exhibits downstairs right now, my friend AB has an, installed in the hallways. Jerrica is featured in that art exhibit. Uh, it'll be wonderful. Yeah, to, because be wonderful yeah, as Celia Howard actually uh, was, the interesting story about Celia Howard is Celia Howard actually was accepted into Harvard Law School. Uh -huh. And when she got there to start on day one, they said, we don't have an application for you. We don't have a, a applicant for a Celia Howard. We have mm -hmm. a Cecil Howard. Mm -hmm. And that was at a time when women were not being accepted into law schools. And mm -hmm. so she didn't have an opportunity to go to law school at, at, at Harvard. Even though she was accepted, they pulled it back because she was a female. Mm -hmm. And so she went on to become a lawyer, mm -hmm. a very successful lawyer. And she became a lawyer. She went to school in Illinois. Uh, this fellowship program, when she passed away, she left an endowment. And this endowment pays for these fellows. And Jerrica and other women have had the opportunity uh, to uh, have this year-long fellowship because of this endowment that was left by uh, Celia Howard. And, it, and is it strictly for the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute, or does it, or is it at different um, institutions throughout the state? Well, actually, it started off, she left it with the uh, University of Illinois, so mm -hmm. they, have, they have 14 of them. And we, <laughs> they, have, they have 14 of them. And because of the work that uh, the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute had done throughout mm -hmm. the years, uh, the executive director came to the institute and ask if we would uh, like to manage one mm -hmm. of the fellows. And so we got one fellow, and we did such a good job. Uh, and these young women have done just great in terms of their service and their commitment mm -hmm. in giving back. Uh, they gave us a second, inter a second fellow, so now we manage two fellows for the Celia Howard Fellowship Program. Oh, wow. And that's through the Federation of, 
uh, women business owners. And just good work grows. Good work grows. <laughs> and, 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 and we, we don't know uh, how into the future there may be more. Yeah. But certainly uh, they are pleased with, and these, these young women do a fabulous job in terms of the work they do, their commitment to service, mm-hmm. uh, their commitment to, to, to women. Uh, they oftentimes write great papers, policy papers yeah. uh, that are distributed uh, on a specific public policy issue. Again, with the emphasis on the impact on women. Uh, and I hope that this conversation has an impact for everybody uh, that gets to hear it. Episode 81 of the WTF Carbondale podcast, where we talk to interesting people about their interesting lives and tie it all back to this little place we call home, Carbondale, Illinois. And Dr. Linda Baker, thanks. <laughs> I just, I, I'm, like I was telling you before, uh, you know, we started recording just just listening to your mind work and, and the connections that it makes and the way that you're able to just kind of work through the work of others, just be able to see it and know where people are, where they're headed, but where they're landed at now and just kind of stay plugged into all of those different stories. Um, I just, I really appreciate that. <laughs> um, and you were, you were kind of, sharing with me as we were scheduling our conversation that you know, you've got a pretty uh, elaborate, uh, interconnected uh, family story in Southern Illinois too. Is that kind of where your interest in, in the stories of others kind of originates from is your own family story? Well, it's interesting. My, coming to Carbondale is like coming home. My parents actually met and married. My parents uh, were both from the South. Mm-hmm. But after World War II, my father came uh, back home to Murfreesboro. Mm-hmm. And my mother had moved up from the South with family. And so my parents met in this area and so mm-hmm. moved on to uh, the Metro East area. My father worked uh, in St. Louis as, as a welder. And he was a barber because he was a barber in the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in the Army. And coming back, I just driving uh, 13 and 127 now, <laughs> but it literally coming down 113, coming down Route 13 uh-huh. and coming here for the Apple Festival and visiting my grandmother uh-huh. who lived then on what was called D Street, uh, this now Williams oh, wow. uh, Street in, in, uh, in Murfreesboro. So yes, deep family connection, uh, love the area. I think it's one of the most beautiful places. And when you think about destination places, we've always had in our family just an affinity for, for Southern Illinois, the people, yeah. uh, the culture, uh, the food, the barbecue. Uh, <laughs> but it, yes, uh, it's, 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 it's a beautiful area for beautiful people. And when you think about the university reaching back into the community, yeah. one of the things I think that um, this system's president and this chancellor have talked about yeah. a lot is the connectedness with the community. Yeah. And I see some of the projects that uh, the university is working on, for instance, with the Irma Hayes Center, mm-hmm. uh, trying to rebuild that center and to look at that part of town and to say, what can we do to make sure that there's access to health care, yeah. that there are after-school programs? And I have the pleasure of being on one of the systems committees um, that, that, that appointed by um, the, the president of the university, mm-hmm. uh, looking at different communities and the impact that the university system, mm-hmm. the Carbondale campus, the uh, Springfield at the, at, at the medical school and the, at, and the campus in Edwardsville, yeah. the connectiveness 
trying to make sure that these institutions become a part of the community, mm -hmm. that we are not just there in the community, but that we become a part of them and we learn the beat of those communities and making sure that the policies that they're trying to live out in communities, that mm -hmm. when we can, we go in, not to say we're the university and we're here to do everything for you, but mm -hmm. we're here to help. Uh, we're here to help you with your planning. We have the School of Architecture. Yeah. We're here to help you talk through some of your infrastructure issues. We have the School of Engineering. Uh, we're here to help talk through some of those issues that you're having with infrastructure and mm -hmm. transportation and and schools and after school programs. So I'm excited about some of the partnerships, especially mm -hmm. with the office that's that's sitting in Springfield. I spent a lot of my time in Springfield, uh -huh. uh, but that's sitting in Springfield that's working with all of the three campuses, and including the dental school, yeah. bringing those resources that the university has to bear to assist with people in those communities. Oh my gosh, you're you're really a, a connect point for so many different things that. Are, are value, like public good value generated by the university. Like, uh, you, you talked about being just on, on committees. Is this something that you expected when you found yourself like even getting into work with the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute early on? But, <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting because my first conversation was with the former director, Mike Lawrence, uh -huh. and Paul Simon. I had an opportunity to sit down with the two of them, and it was for me, one of the most fulfilling conversations. One of the first things I remember Paul Simon talking about is mm -hmm. when I came here, I was ABD, all but the dissertation. <laughs> and, and him saying to me, then in order to be able to be respected on this campus, uh -huh. you need to finish the dissertation. Yeah. You need to have it done. All but dissertation does, is probably not going to get it. I'm a United States senator, and I still have problems past United, walking around on the campus uh -huh. uh, with the academics. He said, you need to finish it. I wow. had come to the university from the Department of, of Human Services, where mm -hmm. I served as the second secretary of that agency. Mm -hmm. It's the largest agency at the, at the time. It was the largest agency in state government with 20,000 employees. Mm -hmm. So from a management perspective, I knew how to manage. Mm -hmm. I managed 20,000 people. I ran all the state-operated facilities uh, as, as far north as the Evanston area and then down to, to Anna. Uh -huh. So I knew the scope and the breadth of the state. I uh, had visited and went to the state-operated facilities, had a management team that I worked with that consisted of uh, the directors of, of a whole host of state agencies because, mm -hmm. again, we had combined and made a super agency because mm -hmm. at that time there was a lot of talk about most people that need something need more than one thing. Mm -hmm. And so if a person needs uh, elder care, if a person needs mm -hmm. child care, we mm -hmm. need to have a super agency that can work with those those individuals on a host of issues, alcoholism and substance abuse, mm -hmm. mental health. And so I ran the super agency as the second, uh, as the second secretary of that agency. We, uh, billions of dollars in budgets, $5.9 billion budget yeah. and 20,000 employees. And so from a management perspective, <laughs> it, was a, it was a mammoth task. And yeah. so coming here with the, the background in healthcare mm -hmm. and in human services and management and leadership, uh, it was very easy for me, but the conversation that I had with Mike Lawrence and Paul Simon at the time, Paul Simon wanted to look at two things uh, when he talked to me. One was the Metro East area, mm -hmm. because having covered 
that area as a reporter mm -hmm. uh, in the Troy area and mm -hmm. looking at some of the corruption in the area, he talked about leadership. And he said the only way that we do the right thing with those in, for those individuals in the Metro East area is to build that next generation of leadership. Mm -hmm. And so we sat down and we devised a plan where we pulled together all of the fraternities in the area, mm -hmm. uh, the folks at the Jackie Joyner Kersey Center at the time, mm -hmm. uh, and we pulled a group of people together, some of the, uh, the faith-based uh, leaders as well, and we talked about leadership development mm -hmm. and what can you do for these young African-American males from a leadership perspective. And so we started and we have continued to do work with the Metro East area. And what we've done is we, we didn't want a one-time shot in the arm, as he said. Yeah. If you bring these kids to Carbondale for a conference, what happens when you leave? Mm -hmm. Who continues to work with them? And so we met with those leaders over, a, over a, probably a course of about six months of meetings back and forth. And they said that they all have mentoring programs. Mm -hmm. And so we said that what we would do for them as an institution is if you have a mentoring program, we, you give us one day, one day out of the year, maybe a weekend, where we bring these boys down to Carbondale. Mm -hmm. Most of them have never been outside. Uh, they've not been fishing. Yeah. They've not been on a nature trail. They are, they're, they're in the city. They don't... Uh, go out and shoot a bow and arrow. They're not climbing a tree. It just uh -huh. doesn't happen. Yeah. And so they don't go camping. And we brought them. We brought them to Carbondale. We brought them to the Touch of Nature Environmental Camp. And we put, and we brought, and everybody that spoke to them was a male. Didn't matter race or ethnicity, but it had to be male to talk about experiencing, what kinds of experiences. And sometimes you can't dream what you've, you've never seen. Yeah. And so talking to them, and bringing in different speakers and talking about leadership and development. And then we, this was a way of supplementing the mentorship that they were doing at the local level. Mm -hmm. And one of the last things that Paul Simon did before he passed away is he actually attended the very first leadership conference at the Touch of Nature. And I can see him very clearly talking mm -hmm. to these young men with this booming voice uh, about leadership and development and talking to them about their communities yeah. and, and the fact that in order to be able to lift up their community, it was gonna have to come for them, from them. They were the next yeah. generation and this was their place and it was their time. And so it, when I think about some of those young men and we keep in touch with many of them, yeah. uh, several of them have come to, um, to SIU. One I think of specifically is Oliver Keys. Uh -huh. Oliver Keys was one of those young men uh, that came to Leadership Weekend. And then uh, he actually now works for, um, for Chrysler. Uh, he went through the automotive technology program mm -hmm. first in his family. Wow. Uh, another young man, um, uh, Ahmad Hicks, uh, was one of those young men. Uh, his father, uh, is a member of one of the fraternities. Ahmad Hicks is now on Channel 5 in St. Louis, and mm -hmm. he actually uh, was one of those, those, and he worked at the Simon Institute as a, as, a, as a student. And I think about a young man by the name of Shaka Mitchell who lives in Chicago and is working, uh, who actually owns his own business and has an MBA and, and actually worked, after he finished his undergraduate, mm -hmm. here in business at SIU, went to Seoul, Korea. And, and, and honed his art uh, of, of the martial arts. And he actually came back to Chicago and opened up a studio right across from the University of Chicago. And so 
we have many names and many faces of mm -hmm. young men that came through that program. And so, as you say, connector, yeah. uh, that is one of the things that I pride myself on is <laughs> uh, looking at good talent yeah. with young people and helping to build, but also connecting with those young people and knowing that it takes a connective group of people mm -hmm. to work to build uh, bridges for this next uh, for this next generation. How did you yourself get into organizing people like this? I mean, was it something that? And I always say this. I, I'm getting to the point where this is becoming cliche for for my questions, but it, it really is the the a, a key component to ask. I mean, was this something that you always felt like you were? you know, pointed towards? Is it something that's been there since a young age or is it something that you kind of found in young adulthood? Like, oh, I'm good at putting people together. <laughs> and, you know, and, and I, I think it's, 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 it's a skill. It's about leadership. Uh -huh. and, and the other thing too, I, I, as, as my mom always said, find your talent. Uh -huh. And so my talent wasn't playing the piano and I took many piano lessons, but that just was not, it, it was my sister's gift. It was not mine. Uh -huh. So that it, 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 it is a gift. Uh, it, it's a gift and you, over, over time, you find a way of, 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 of working because most things cannot be done in a silo. Yeah. I learned that very early on in state government, uh, being an intern in state government. Mm -hmm. Also, I working uh, as the assistant director of public aid, uh, mm -hmm. knowing that when you, when you look at, and I think that's why, you know, in terms of working at the super agency, heading mm -hmm. the super agency, being able to pull all those individuals together, understanding that you cannot solve big problems, yeah. need more than probably one solution. Mm -hmm. And the way you do that is to being able to work well with others. And so it was very interesting. The other part of coming to the Institute was that I would be able to also work not only with the, with the um, political science department, but mm -hmm. that I would also be able to work with the School of Medicine. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, when we think about uh, Paul Simon passing in December, mm -hmm. well, in November, one of the, the, the most um, enlightening things that I saw him do was the um, conference that we put together. We worked for several months planning a conference, and, w and who knew at the time it would be the last conference that he would do, yeah. but the conference was uh, entitled Access to Healthcare in rural and underserved areas. And so one of the things that Paul Simon said at the time was healthcare, when we think about underserved areas, when we think about the 16 counties, and we think about mm -hmm. south, to the south, and we think mm -hmm. about everything north of I-80, which peop most people say that's southern Illinois, mm -hmm. anything north of I-80. <laughs> but when you, when you think about the healthcare delivery system and you think about the social determinants of health mm -hmm. and the fact that people in Chicago have transportation issues in some of those underserved areas. They have transportation issues. They may not be the same transportation issues that we have here, but you may have a situation in an urban area where there's a gang territory mm -hmm. and there may be a grocery store, but you can't get to it mm -hmm. because you don't, you're not allowed to go across a certain area mm -hmm. depending upon what's going on at a particular time. Uh, having to take three and four children on the L, on the mm -hmm. train, mm -hmm. if you don't have a car. That's a transportation issue, yeah. just like it is in Southern Illinois. If you don't have a car, trying to get to healthcare and trying to and, and food deserts and trying to get mm -hmm. to where there's there's good food. And so, he talked about the fact that 
we have more in common than we have apart. And mm -hmm. so as we think about solving our health care issues and health care disparities, some of the same health care disparities for poor people in underserved areas, they're the same in rural areas. And mm -hmm. so he talked about bringing those legislators together. And he talked about bringing those policymakers together, and he did. We had a conference at the Crown Plaza in, in, in Springfield, mm -hmm. and it was very widely attended. And it was interesting because as one of the people that had to help get the list of speakers, mm -hmm. and we gave the speakers to him, and he approved a list of speakers that we gave him, and he said, now, what you need to tell this list of speakers is in order to speak on the podium, mm -hmm. they have to stay after the conference is over <laughs> because we're not going to have a situation where we have a conference and everybody leaves. Mm -hmm. I want to sit around the table with those individuals along with the dean of the medical school and we're going to come up with a plan based upon what we hear from the participants in the audience and based upon the research that they've gathered. And we, I looked and I said to Mike Lawrence, that's gonna be pretty hard. I said, <laughs> because most people wanna to come to a conference uh -huh. and speak and leave. Yeah. And he said, well, we need to find people that can come to a conference and sit around a table uh -huh. and come up with some solutions. And the only person that didn't have to stay, that got a pass, um, <laughs> was Senator Durbin. Mm -hmm. So he didn't stay. He was, he was a keynoter, and he did not have to stay. But everyone else stayed. We had doctors. We had um, from across the state. We had um, legislators from across the state. We had other practitioners. Uh, policymakers, researchers that spoke at that conference, and they stayed. And we came up with a, a, a plan that, and when you think about telehealth and people talking about telehealth, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that was a part of the plan. Wow. Uh, back then. And mm -hmm. so many of those things on that list, and I've heard over the years, I've seen that brochure that came from that conference mm -hmm. with that, that list of about 16, rec 16 to 20 recommendations. Mm -hmm. I've seen that on the desk of legislators. I've seen it on the desk of policymakers from across the state. And so when you talk about legacy building and connecting, mm -hmm. and when you talk about connector, me being a connector, yeah. Paul Simon was the ultimate connector. He believed in connecting people. He believed in working with students. I was actually talking with a person in Springfield the other day uh, who's actually on the House Republican staff, uh -huh. uh, oddly enough, but he was in Paul Simon's class. And he talked about Paul Simon's leadership and his, and his ability to work with others, but also his ability to develop people. Yeah. And so if, 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 if I want to emulate anything from him, it is the connectivity, because he definitely was a connector. Yeah. And he was a developer. And he was one that, regardless of of race or party that knew how to work with people mm -hmm. to get things done. And so, as I said earlier in the podcast, I am actually, I'm excited about this time for this university. I'm excited to have a systems president yeah. who is a connector, yeah. uh, who has said to those of us who are on the various committees, whether it be about diversity, whether it be about working with the community, mm -hmm. uh, he has a has a, uh, a keen sense of what's going on in communities. Yeah. Uh, he's talking about healthcare because that's first and foremost on the minds of many, especially with the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, get involved in these communities, work with these communities. Uh, we are looking at the four pillars that um, the, the Illinois Black Caucus, mm -hmm. uh, Legislative Black Caucus has when they talk about healthcare, they talk about economic development and uh, transportation. We're looking at the leadership that they have have provided 
and we're actually working with communities to help build those communities. And what better way uh, for an academic institution that mm -hmm. sits as in most of these in, in, in Carbondale, we're the largest employer. Yeah. You know, you have SIH and you have us. Mm -hmm. And so we need to connect with the folks at SIH to improve the health care of people in this community. And I think we have a, a charge and a challenge to do that. And I, I think we have a president and a chancellor yeah. that really is pushing us to really work with these communities. What's it like being able to see things that were on a list that you helped build you know, over 15 years ago and then watch them over time become implemented, not just become policy on paper, but actions based in the policy that has been developed. It's, 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 it's a very good feeling. And as I said, to, to see that brochure, to still see people looking at that brochure. And, you know, we, we're into like 2.0 now. We yeah. actually have had several conferences after that. And uh, Dr. Samir Vora and I have been working very closely together from the School of Medicine. Uh, he and Dr. Cruz have really come together and said, okay, we're going to now look at the same kind of, 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 of approach. And, mm -hmm. and we're approaching it in the same way. We've had a, a, lit, a, a whole host of meetings uh, where we're working with communities and bringing people in mm -hmm. to talk about health care, to talk about what the School of Medicine can do mm -hmm. uh, to help to improve the access to health care in these areas, looking at and building upon that work that was done 15 years ago, yeah. because we know things have changed. There have been the many, th especially with this pandemic, this pandemic oh, yeah. has shed a light on many of the things that we already knew. We knew that poor people in certain areas had bad health care. Mm -hmm. They, even though the health care was there, they were not going for various reasons. Mm -hmm. And so maybe we, and the need for community health workers to meet people where they are mm -hmm. in their communities, to be able to get them to the services that they need mm -hmm. and to find out why they're not going to those services. Uh, we know that it, we talk about the food deserts and bringing food to people and mm -hmm. being that connector uh, for the community, I think is something that uh, we've known for a long time, but at, this pandemic has shown us that it's not about it's, it's not enough for me to take care of myself mm -hmm. if my next door neighbor isn't. Because if my next door neighbor has the virus and we go to the same grocery store, mm -hmm. we're in the same areas, we breathe the same air, and mm -hmm. so it's not enough to just take care of your street and your community, yeah. but it's to be connected to and to look at our communities as a whole. What do you think about kind of the national dialogue that has started to embrace uh, some of these components that you've been looking at for years and years and years now? I mean, where where people are starting to acknowledge uh, the value and the need for social work, not just as this standalone component, but this integrated function into many of the different services that people have to take advantage of. Uh, same deal with you know, food resilience and, and uh, just being able to, uh, you know, localize or, or sustain your food sources because you know that, you know, hierarchy of needs, food's pretty high up there. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and the, all of those, absolutely. And the fact that I can remember uh, finishing my doctoral degree and actually having some discussions and had, having an opportunity mm -hmm. to meet uh, David Satcher. Uh, was a Surgeon General. 
And one of the one of the most profound things that I heard him say is there is no health without mental health. Mm -hmm. And when I became Secretary of Human Services, we had buttons that said there is no health without mental health. And so looking at mental health parity Mm -hmm. and looking at building mental health into health care. And we know that we have for a long time, we've shied away from even addressing the issues of mental health. Mm -hmm. And we have seen as a result of this pandemic, we've seen children that are going through issues with depression, mm-hmm. uh, people that have not, didn't realize they had anxiety before, they have anxiety issues now. Mm-hmm. And so dealing with mental health, and when we, th- when we talk about law enforcement, and oftentimes you know police officers not having the right training, mm-hmm. how to deal with mental health, people that have mental health issues. Mm-hmm. So some of those are some of the issues that we have worked on and looked at for a very long time. And those are some of the issues now, as you say, they are on the national agenda right now, yeah. just in terms of overall health. Well, and it's, it's any one person can, can, can look at their own silo and say, oh, well, I've, you know, I'm, I'm here because I'm here. But the reality is there are so many folks across an ecosystem of, uh, you know, of, of lawmakers and, and workers and, and, and policy writers and so on and so forth that, you know, have, have done the work to get us to this point in these conversations. It's not just, oh, well, it, it, was, it was an idea one day and, and, and now it's here and well, we're going to push for this policy. It's like, it's already been in the works. Like- <laughs> it's, 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 it's been debated, it's been discussed. And, and sometimes, it, you know, what is the positive that comes out of the tragedy? Yeah. And when we think about many of these communities, we, we, we knew that obesity was an issue. Yeah. We knew that if high blood pressure and hypertension is an issue. We know that people that don't get health screenings oftentimes could, there, there are other issues that come about because if we would have just got that screen, we would have known earlier that something came up, you know, that we had a, a specific issue. But I think, you know, the um, pushing for community health workers to go into communities, to mm-hmm. work with individuals, and then, you know, looking, looking at the disparities that do exist mm-hmm. and recognizing them for what they are. Not saying you, if, if a person has a Medicaid card, because that was one of the things when I was Secretary of Human Services, people were saying, well, we've expanded health care, and so all these people have, they have a Medicaid card, mm-hmm. so they're good. Well... But do they have a doctor that yeah. takes that card? There are a lot of doctors that, at, over the years, that wouldn't take Medicaid, mm-hmm. that close their panels to Medicaid individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, children we know need certain screens for their, de- their dental care. We know that over the years, we've done a lot of policy changes over the years to make sure that those dental screenings that were done, that was one of the things that we worked on, actually that Paul Simon and Mike Lawrence worked on before mm-hmm. I came, was uh, they, they had just started the work of getting the dental hygiene program to do screenings for children in the community. Mm-hmm. That's outreach. Mm-hmm. That is connecting. That's connecting the community where we sit with the people that need us. Yeah. There has to be a bridge between the two. And so the Simon Institute was very instrumental in helping to make that connection mm-hmm. with the dental school, making sure that kids in Carbondale that needed dental work, as well as adults, could get that work done on that campus through the hygiene program. 
And we know that with, 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 with dental care, you can find out a lot. You can find out about hypertension yeah. and so many other things just by looking at your teeth. And so really? that whole <laughs> piece of connectiveness and, mm-hmm. and being able to connect people with other people, but also to change some of the policies. You know, mm-hmm. we are the policy institute and, and, and actually helping individuals to make those connections that sometimes communities don't have uh, the resources to be able to do. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's it, right? And the, the value in just having an advocate, what it means to have some folks that are capable, willing, and connected in a way that allows them to do that on behalf of so many thousands of people. Like, eh, that's what we've moved away from in terms of, well, what is... What is representation anymore? Right. And also, and being, a, you know, when you think about legislators, not only what, what, what might help Carbondale and Cairo with the Senator Fowler and a Terry Bryant mm-hmm. is also probably going to help a Senator Chris Belt and yeah. a Latoya Greenwood. Yeah. But it's going to also help, they're in the Metro East, but it's going to also help a, a legislator on the West Side, uh, LaShawn Ford in Mm-hmm. in Chicago, but it's going to also help a Jahan Gordon in Peoria. And so when we think about good public policy, good public policy is about connecting. It's about leadership, and it's about making good connections, and also having a conversation and finding out what individual communities need. And I think, as I, as I think about this past year, and that's why I'm really proud of the Legislative Black Caucus and the work that they've done, mm-hmm. because this year they spoke to communities and it was tough in talking to many of them. Mm-hmm. It was really tough as they really tried to hammer out and work with their colleagues from mm-hmm. across the state to talk about housing and health care. And there is a connection between housing and health care mm-hmm. and criminal justice and economic development. There's a connection between all of those. And we have the infrastructure within SIU, our institution, to be able to be pivotal mm-hmm. in all of those. Now we can't do it. It's not like we have a, you know, an army or resource, but we can be of assistance yeah. to those. And I think when we when we think about the Office of Community Engagement uh, that's going to come in Springfield, uh, that is that, that is actually open this Office of Community Engagement, mm-hmm. but also that office will be working directly with the campuses. And I think that is for me one who has in her mind and sees the vision of how things connect together mm-hmm. and how you bring all these resources to bear to assist a community, uh, I'm really excited about that work uh, and what it's going to mean for communities. Is it, is it heartening with, with years into this work to see kind of the, the spread out again, start at a center point, right, with a handful of folks through the Public Policy Institute, but his blossomed uh, and bloomed into the entirety of the system, this interdisciplinary work and really finding more folks and, and engaging more folks in leadership roles throughout the system that see the value in this interdisciplinary work, not just each school is its own silo, but each school is its own producer of just one thread of yarn that will spin together with all of the others. Well, absolutely, and when you and when you think about you know you, you have other universities that are part of big systems, mm-hmm. and if you and if and if if the if the whole if the system works, 
all the parts are healthy. Yeah. If they work together and they coordinate and they collaborate. And I've had, as I said, I've had the opportunity recently to work on several of these committees and to see the energy and the synergy mm-hmm. among the people on those campuses, uh, to see uh, uh, Dr. Garish in, in Springfield and to talk to him on, and, and to see how he is pulling together uh, the best collective thinking on these campuses mm-hmm. and to talk about what we can do for communities. And that is, I think that's how SIU grows. That's how we grow our student base. Yeah. You know, when, 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 when people in Carbondale and people in, and I know we're doing some work now with trying to get the, um, the folks from Carbondale and surrounding areas, stay home. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to go far away, stay home. Yeah. And then other people that, you know, that, that may be in St. Louis and in other areas come. And then trying to get people who are graduates and alums, send your kids. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about what is going on, that's about connections too. Yeah. It's about connecting back with those individuals who may have been here at a very different time when there were lots and lots of students and <laughs> there was a lot going on. And, and, and I think we're building back toward that, mm-hmm. but doing it in a systematic way as opposed to a siloed approach. Yeah. Well, and it's it's going to it's going to require. I, I I don't know exactly what 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 to call it. I'd have to look at my emails to, to reference it. But something having to do with the alumni association connecting some key alumni with um, the the uh, deans of the newly organized schools, and then finding ways to communicate within that. So I mean, it's it's happening at all levels too. It's not just like these are conversations that are occurring behind closed doors and it's a plan and we're going to release it and whatever else. These are these are all actual things occurring from the ground up from the student that is just stepping off of, you know, the the graduation day as to the folks who are looking at this going, "All right, well, it is time to send my kids back to college. Let's send them on down to SIU." Um <laughs> and you, I mean, you, you said one of your, one of your kids is 19 now. Have you been going through, not necessarily the, the SIU talk, but you've been going through the, all the college moves and all that and, and figuring out what the. That one's in college. I have a 17 year old that I'm doing that with. Now. Oh, I, I, have a, I have a senior in high school that is, <laughs> that is really trying to figure out where he wants to go, what he uh-huh. wants to do. He's thinking about whether or not he wants to play football or. Uh-huh. Does he want to come here? Does he where, where does he want to go? Yeah. And it's you know it, at, at this point he's he's he, he's he's still trying to make a decision. So he, I think he's an open book at this point. Yeah. But you know letting letting individuals know about the resources and I, and I saw that the the two throwers uh-huh. uh, in the Olympics uh, the other yeah. day that are that are Saluki. So it, there's um. It helps out. It helps out <laughs> just just to be just to be visible. I mean, it's 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 cool, you know, notable notable alumni and all of all of that other components. But this just going through that process with your kids gives you a, a special kind of insight that allows you to understand and put yourselves in the shoes of all of the other parents and all of the other kids that are having to make these decisions about where to go and is SIU that right place for me to find myself. Is it the right place for me to pursue my passions? Is it the right place for me to change my mind? That's quite the... (laughs) And I I just, I thought that was another component as we were talking about before the podcast that where you had changed your mind as well on, you know, the side of medicine that you wanted to be on, the hands-on actual application of medicine 
in the moment of need versus the policy that that directs that activity in the moment of need. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So as, as as I mentioned to you, I did an, I did an, I did two internships mm-hmm. uh, as an undergraduate. One was at St. Mary's Hospital in East St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And that internship was a big awakening for me. I had done one before at Scott Air Force Base, and I did it in their hospital, very calm hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was great. It was very slow-paced, not, no trauma or anything. Well, at the time, St. Mary's was a level one trauma. Ooh, wow. And I was taking a class at Belleville Area College over the summer, and it was an EMT class. <laughs> and what I saw in that emergency room, level one trauma at that time, I decided... This is not the place for me. Yeah, I went back and quickly went into uh, the administration and leadership mm-hmm. and policy uh, because the hands-on was definitely not the place for me. <laughs> what is what does having a level one trauma center now in Carbondale mean for us? It it is absolutely it's great for the community. Yeah, uh, that you're that you can take care of many of those emergency needs mm-hmm. here. That you're not flying people to St. Louis, that you actually have a trained and ready workforce here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I'm excited about uh, many of the medical programs, the expansion of programs, mm-hmm. uh, having the nursing program yeah. uh, back in Carbondale. Uh, I know there were many nurses that were driving to Edwardsville and other places from Heron and Carbondale to go to nursing school. Mm-hmm. And they can now go to nursing school here. And that's going to help because you're going to need those nurses for that level one trauma center. So that is exciting for this community. Uh, I know SIH has done a great job in ter- just in terms of, again, they are connectors. Um, yeah. Rex Buddy and Woody Thorne, I've mm-hmm. worked with both of them over the years. They are connectors. They, like Paul Simon, see a problem, mm-hmm. and they connect with others in order to make things happen in the community. And so the, the, the work that SIH has done over the years and the partnerships mm-hmm. that they've forged, and then the needs assessments that they've done to see what the needs are in this community, I think means a lot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just knowing what your issues are, right? I mean, it's it's like you'd mentioned earlier. It's one thing to have the backing to go, you know, pursue and, and obtain the resource. It's a whole other thing to understand how to chart that course. You know, I, I'm I'm in the midst of it right now. I'm I'm lucky that. You know, a community health worker has been able to guide me through. Nathan, go, go establish your primary care. Nathan, quit ignoring, you know, uh, different health issues because you're not just somebody in your 20s who's concerned about will I be able to pay a medical bill or not now. Like, there's just no choice. Like, you have to follow through with it when you start hitting a certain point, regardless of the apprehension of, well, how much is this healthcare really going to cost me in the end? Um, which I imagine just just putting putting efforts in place to help guide people through the the healthcare process has yielded uh, a world of positive outcomes. Well, absolutely, and, and 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 helping people to find a medical home. Yeah, and you know the issues of cultural competency mm-hmm. are real. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, individuals oftentimes don't go to the doctor because they may want a doctor that looks like them, or some person some people may want a male doctor, some might want a female mm-hmm. doctor. Uh, finding a, a, a medical home for yourself. And I mm-hmm. think having those community health workers that are out there that are connecting with, and the other thing that has really helped healthcare in, in a large way is the, you know, the managed care 
companies mm -hmm. working with and managing the care mm -hmm. of individuals as opposed to the individual just going from place to place, being able to find a, a, a healthcare home mm -hmm. where you can go and if you need specialists and others, getting that care that way as opposed to the emergency room. What do you see as kind of the next steps in healthcare policy, whether it's whether it's statewide or, or nationally, um, that are that are just kind of this is this is where we're going to be in five or ten years, having known what the past couple of decades have looked like, getting us to where we are now. Well, you know, I think with with um, with what we've have been shown in terms mm -hmm. of the pandemic, I think there will there's there's going to be more attention uh, to uh, prevention. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's going to be more attention to the the whole person, the whole individual yeah. uh, in healthcare. Uh, you know, gone I think are the days where people are afraid to talk about the fact that they have mental health issues. Mm -hmm. uh, we look at the Olympics the other day yeah. with Simone Biles saying, "I am in crisis. Yeah. I'm not going to get on that beam at this time. I'm having a mental health crisis." And being able to say that, uh, I think uh, that's. I think that is a huge step. Yeah, uh, That's one of the things that we've talked about at the Simon Institute as we talk about different policies. For 15 years, that Paul talked about that, uh, mental health in jail, mm -hmm. uh, in jails. He actually talked a lot about that and even wrote about yeah. uh, the fact that for many people, it's, it's sad that you're in incarcerated and you're getting better medical care while you're in prison mm -hmm. than you do when you get out. Mm -hmm. You're getting continuity of care. And when you get out, or you're managed on your medications mm -hmm. uh, while you're in, while you're incarcerated, and when you get out, there's no continuity of care. And so I think as we move forward and and see that all of the disparities in healthcare that we we knew they were there, yeah, we looked the other way. But I think um, you know one of the things that often you know we, women have talked about, and especially women of color, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of healthcare. And providers not listening, you know, the, the pain mm -hmm. threshold and the number of, of, of African, when we talk, my dissertation, I looked at, um, I looked at healthcare disparities mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, years ago when I did my doctoral dissertation and looking at, at healthcare disparities and looking at the another, number of mothers that died at birth and disproportionately those are poor mothers, but even greater to a greater extent, mm -hmm. they're mothers of color. And so looking at healthcare disparities, I think we, the lens is off, the curtain is back. We know that the, the disparities exist. Mm -hmm. And I think as we talk about advocacy, we're going to see more in terms of advocacy. Uh, when I worked for um, the, when I, at that particular time, when uh, Barack Obama was then, when he was Senator Obama mm -hmm. in the House of, in the, in the Illinois State Senate, mm -hmm. Uh, I actually had the opportunity to know him because at that particular time, uh, I was the director, assistant director at public aid, uh, that's in, in the public aid days. And one of the interesting things back then, his whole piece was healthcare. Mm -hmm. And, and, and at that time it was about trying to get more people on Medicaid, mm -hmm. the expansion of Medicaid. He talked a lot about it and we are there now. You know, we have expanded. We were, Illinois was one of the first states mm -hmm. to expand Medicaid, and that was a big piece for him in the Senate was health care mm -hmm. and expansion of Medicaid, making sure that individuals had access. When he got to Congress, he, he, he continued to fight that fight, and, of course, he fought it. 
when he became president mm -hmm. and continued to fight the fight about healthcare expansion. Well, now that we've expanded healthcare, more people have healthcare. Mm -hmm. We need to make sure that people understand how to utilize the healthcare delivery system mm -hmm. to their benefit and that we devise a healthcare de uh, delivery system that is, and it's a, it's a hard thing to do, yeah. but that is not biased about who people are that walk through the door, mm -hmm. that all individuals that walk through the door of a provider, that they're listened to, that they're heard, mm -hmm. and that their needs are met. And that we understand that there is a link between healthcare and education. There's a link and a connection mm -hmm. between your healthcare and where you live mm -hmm. and your environment. All of those things impact your health. And so as we move forward to continue to build a healthcare delivery system, we have to look at it from a holistic perspective. Do you think people overcomplicate this stuff when it really is just here's a handful of the key components about getting you the funding, then the access, then the transportation, and then the treatment that, that really we... We want to too often uh, say, oh, well, there, well, here's all the reasons why we can't deliver on a need for somebody when, when really it would just be much easier to say, well, here's the four steps that we need to take and then you'll prevent us from having greater societal issues down the road. Human <laughs> nature being what it is, we definitely always complicate things yeah. you know but i think that the, the i think as we as we look at individuals and each individual situation is different yeah because i may live in a specific area and i just can't get there mm -hmm. so how do you provide me with the transportation it may be out there but i may have a mental health issue and i'm mm -hmm. not getting there and that's why i think these community health workers yeah there was a time where people didn't want people to come to their homes. Yeah. You know, when that was a bad thing. <laughs> but I think now we are we are awakening to the fact that we're it's, it's going to take all hands on deck and it's going to take a combination of things to be able to um to solve this. And healthcare is not just a building. Yeah. And it's not just one thing. Healthcare is is all of those things, the mm -hmm. education, the economic development, all of those, the transportation all of that, is, it is an all-encompassing piece. And that just continues to, to, to just hold up uh, the value of yourself as a connector. I, I get it. Uh, it's just so, it's so, uh, like I said before the conversation, I don't know if I had said it off the, off the top or not as well, but just, just seeing and, and hearing, um, you know, the, the way in which you're able to put these things together is just inspiring. <laughs> it really, it really, really is. And this is one of those conversations that I'm going to share. So I was like, Oh man, I really, I really, I, and I was telling Allie this, um, just a couple days ago. I was like, man, you know, the interview with John Jackson was one of the best that I feel like I've, I've gotten in thus far. And then you're coming in and blowing the doors off. <laughs> uh, you're like, get out of here, Nathan. Hush. No. <laughs> well, 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 thank you. And I, and I, I appreciate it on, on behalf of the Institute and, and then on behalf of the students, as we, yeah. we started early, we talked about the, the internship programs yeah. and we now have a, a list and we have an a, a alumni group. Of, of interns and fellows uh -huh. that have gone through the Institute. And I think as we continue to build the Institute and, and we, you know, we, we have a, a host of great speakers that, 
that that the institute is lined up. John has brought some great speakers in yeah. uh, that have, and hopefully, once the pandemic is over, some of those people will come and be here with us in live. Yeah. Uh, I remember Paul Simon bringing in people like Walter Cronkite and and um, Coretta Scott King and some of those individuals. And mm -hmm. and I see the people that we have now that are coming in via Zoom and the technology. And I think being able to connect the students and also the SIU community to those, to the caliber of speakers has been something that has really been helpful uh, to the Institute during a time where, when you think about what do you do during a pandemic? Yeah. How do you get students involved? How do you bring still bring in some of the best speakers? Well, you use technology to bring them in. And so I think that has been a, a big piece for yeah. um, for the for the for the institute, and also a way of us sending out the links to those alumni that we have, and we we have a strong alumni base of just interns that have gone through mm -hmm. uh, the the institute. And I've recently just you know we actually every year when the internship program starts up, we'll start up again in January. Mm -hmm. uh, so the in, the internships go from January the Springfield interns January through May, and before they start, we always have we either a conference call or we have a Zoom call mm -hmm. with prior interns to kind of tell them, this is what you need to look forward to. Mm -hmm. If you're a junior, you'll come back to campus, but you will certainly come back with a rich set of experiences. Mm -hmm. If you're a senior, make sure you have your resume, you've dusted off because mm -hmm. if you want to work in government and if you do a good job, staffers come and go, there's probably going to be a place for you. Yeah. And for uh, for those interns, and then we always have a big dinner uh, in Springfield with all of the people that many of them who are currently working in government mm -hmm. that were former interns with the new interns. So that's a way again connecting those interns to the individuals who have gone before them builds a, builds a great alumni base, mm -hmm. and it gives also the in, the current interns something to look at a path for when I get done with this, that's the path forward. You had talked about some of these speakers that, that Paul had brought in, uh, in, in earlier years. Is there anybody that really sticks out in your mind as just was an absolute joy to, to be able to, to listen to at the Institute? Oh, you can just list off. My Angelou. Uh, I mean, he's the, it, I, I can't say one better than the other, yeah. but if you have an opportunity to go by the Institute and take a look on the wall mm -hmm. and to look at everyone from um, the president of the Senate, speaker of the house in mm -hmm. Illinois, yeah. uh, to then having uh, you know, other members of Congress and then notable people that are in media, people yeah. that uh, ambassadors and governors and just a phenomenal list and a powerful wall. Yeah. Um, Barack Obama, when he was Barack Obama state senator, yeah. uh, having him there and just so, to, to walk through and look at, and, I, and people are in awe when they come to the Institute and they walk through the forestry building, yeah. which is where, where Paul worked himself, and to look at the walls and see the number of people that have graced the halls of campus as a result of him being a connector yeah. and bringing them here. And that is the great connection for this episode, episode 81 
of the WTF Carbondale podcast. Um, just an inspiring conversation about staying connected and being a connector as well. Uh, have a good one, folks. Whatever that one may be.